calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. I had a mini panic. I know. Every every time we don't, like, discuss discuss it, it, I just did really quick math in my head. (laughs) I was like, Keegan edited the last full length, so it's my turn. Well, thank you so much. You're so welcome. (laughs) So I'm getting ready to leave town. I will actually be in Missouri when this episode goes up. So, um, we needed to find something to do pretty quickly. Very quickly, yes. And these are always good for that. Yes. Like, you know, you can very thoroughly or pretty thoroughly research or do prep for an episode like this. So, welcome to another book report episode. (laughs) Yes. Installment of Forgotten Feminist Faves. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Keegan is going to go first. Yes. Okay, so... I was looking for who to do, and I try not to pick people who are too similar to the last one that I've done before. You know, I try and, like, mix it up as much as I can. It can be hard to, like, look. I used to have a list, and I don't know where that list went. I should start a list. Um, But there's, like, it's hard to find forgotten Right, because the whole point is that, like, you have probably not heard of them or your exposure to them has been very limited. There was a blog that I found a while ago that could not find this time that every, like, week they post a different feminist you've never heard of. I got a bunch from there before and I could not find it this week. Yeah, that would be super, super helpful. That's exactly what you need. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm like, jackpot. But also, I don't want you and I pulling from all the same resources. True. Because we want it to be a little bit of a surprise to each other. And we don't want to always pick the same person. Yes. You know? Just by happenstance, it's fun. Yes. So. You told me that who you were doing is kind of current. So yes, that's why I, I told you that, too. I went back. I went way back. Um, and I realized that sometimes some of this stuff can sound sort of repetitive because we might be pulling people from the same, like, time period as people we've done before, and yeah. a lot of the same names will start to pop up over and over again. Um, but still, I find their stories really interesting and well, fascinating. because everybody has different backgrounds, you Right, know? and this person... I just, when I started reading about her life, 
I was fascinated by it, and I was like, this is the type of person who should have a biopic. Like, mm-hmm. I'm like, why does this person not have a biopic? Which I find myself thinking a lot of the time. Yeah. I'm like, you, you see all these other people getting biopics, and you're like, why that guy? Yeah. And not, like, this person over here. Yeah. Speaking of, oh my god, did you see the trailer for Harriet? No. The new Harriet Tubman movie? I thought you were going to ask me if I'd seen the trailer for Judy, and I was like, that's for another time. Oh, no. I don't even know what that is. I mean, I'm assuming it's a Judy Garland biopic. It's Renee Zellweger singing Judy Garland songs. that's right. I knew that was coming. Way over the... Oh, so she's doing her Marilyn Monroe impression for Judy Garland. Legit, yeah. Okay. Um, No, the Harriet Tubman document... Or, not documentary. The Harriet Tubman biopic looks amazing. Who's playing Harriet? Uh, It's Cynthia... What is her last name? She won a uh, Tony for The Color Purple. Ooh, I'm yes. going to look it up right she's, now. She's incredible. She's, well, is it just called Harriet? Yes. She's English because um, they keep coming over here and stealing our jobs as actors. Cynthia Erivo. Yes. And Leslie Odom <gasps> Jr. is Janelle in it. Janelle Monet. Janelle Monet is in it. It looks freaking amazing so watch that trailer when you get a chance yo i'm going to uh, i actually put it on my facebook so you can go there and watch it later Perfect. okay so i am going to talk today about victoria woodhull and okay. victoria woodhull and this is something that was news to me was the first most historians agree is the first woman to run for president <gasps> Ever. What? Yes. I mean, and there is some kind of, like, uh, dispute about the legitimacy of her candidacy for right. a few reasons that we will get into. Perfect. Some, like, more valid than others. Like, for instance, like, she was 34 when she ran for president and wouldn't have been 35 until right. two months after um, were, her inauguration. Were laws different then? No, it was the same. It's like you have to be 35 to be the president, Uh at least. Um, So there were, like, things like that, among other things. So let's jump right in. Victoria Woodhull was born Victoria California Claflin. Damn, girl! Yes. I love it. I I love states as names. And though. I love just Victoria Claflin even Victoria sounds Claflin. so like Hollywood. It does, and she had a very non-Hollywood-esque upbringing. Her sister's name, who she ended up being, she was like one of ten siblings. Oh my god. Uh, only six of which made it to maturity. Wow. And she had a very close relationship with, and we'll talk about their relationship as well, with her youngest sister, Tennessee. <gasps> Tennessee oh. Claflin. So, wow. Uh, Victoria California Claflin, uh, she was born in a rural frontier town of Homer Licking County, Ohio. Licking County? Licking County on September 23rd, 1838. And her mother's name was Roxana Roxy Hummel Claflin, uh, who was Ill- completely illiterate. Yeah. And her um, father, her father's name was Reuben Old Buck Buckman Claflin. <gasps> You're making a face like that's sweet, but oh. not gonna like oh, him in he's a minute. Dick. Okay, he's Dick. Yeah, I just love when people have like sweet nicknames. I know it's, it's like it's Roxy, Roxy old and Old Buck. Yeah, right. It's going it to seems... go over for apple pie later and real get cute. The, the hot goss, right? Your daughters Vicky and Tenny, how adorable! Oh. And actually, Tennessee went by Tenny, which is really cute. <laughs> Um, so good naming parents. Good naming. I mean, honestly, props on the naming. Yes. Um, 
Her mother, Roxy, was a follower of an Austrian mystic, Franz Mesmer, mm. uh, and was into the spiritualist movement. So the spiritualist movement was kind of like kicking off mm-hmm. uh, around this time in the United States yeah. in the late 19... 18. Eight, yeah, in late 19th century, oh. early 20th century. Got kind it. of like that bracket. But her father, Old Buck, was a con man by trade. He was like a snake oil salesman. He didn't have an actual job. Right. So it's them... All these kids, they're poor as fuck. They're, like, super poverty-stricken. And Victoria was regularly abused, both physically and sexually, by her father. Mm. Um, And the the abuse included being whipped and starved. And um, some... Some biographers have said that there was incest involved, and some have said that that was speculation. Well, if she was sexually abused, I feel like that... Do you, does you have to have the actual act of like penetrative sex for it to be incest? I, I believe so. Okay, because to me, awful. Any, yeah, because to me, any sexual contact. sexual act between blood family members to me would be considered incest. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would think so as well. I think maybe by technical terms, it has to be yeah actual penetration. But all of it is terrible, regardless yeah, not of good. of you know what exactly it was. So her teachers thought that she was really very, very smart, but she only had three years of formal education by the time she was 11, at which time she was forced to quit school when her family was run out of town after her father heavily insured the family's grist mill and then set it on fire to get the insurance money. And so when he went to go... (laughs) Yeah, when he went to go collect the insurance money, they were like, mm... No. And his fraud and his arson was discovered, so a group of vigilantes ran ran the whole family off. Yeah. So uh, That's when what you she, get. Yeah. When she was fourteen, Victoria met twenty eight year old Canning Woodhull and sometimes called Channing. So Canning or Channing. Perfect age to find perfect ages to find love. Literally twice her age. Yeah. She's 14, he is 28. I don't see a problem, Keegan. And um, he was a doctor in New York. Mm-hmm. Okay. And her family had contracted him because she had had, like, chronic illness. And I'm like, maybe from all the starvation, possibly. <laughs> and um, beatings. And beatings could have caused some of those illnesses. And by some accounts, this is unclear, too. So when you go back this far... You know, we've said this before on the podcast. Different, I've read, I read like three or four different articles that all had kind of conflicting information because at some point, especially when you have somebody who did so much in their life, um, some of it becomes almost like lore or legend. Um, It's hard to figure out what's legitimate and what's not. Right. But by some accounts, Canning Woodhull abducted Victoria in order to marry her, which I feel like even in the 1860s or whatever time we're talking here, 14 was still young. Like, I feel like it was still young. I mean, people got married that young, though. I mean, sure they did, but I still feel like 28 and a 14-year-old, although I also wouldn't have put it past her parents to have just been like, it's fine. (laughs) Take her. You know? was, Was this family, were they people of color? No. Okay. No, no, no. They're white. Yeah. Okay. Because I feel like, especially with things like that, the general society, if they were, like, black, for instance, they probably wouldn't care as much. You know what I mean? Yeah. Were. I mean, and she's poor. 
So yeah. in that respect, they might not care either. True. It's not like you're taking like a really well-off, quote-unquote, like well-bred 14-year-old yeah. girl. Yeah. Um, this is a girl who's coming from a family of poverty and marrying a doctor. Although I did do some reading on canning. And at that time, you didn't really, in certain states, you didn't really need a license to oh. practice medicine. You could kind of just be like, I'm a doctor. And people were like, all right. I wish. Fine. You know? I just walk into a house and be like, I'm a doctor now. Pay me well. <laughs> so they ended up getting married just two months after Victoria's 15th birthday. Oy. So Canning was an alcoholic. He cheated on Victoria often. It was, by all accounts, a loveless marriage on her end. She did not love him. She didn't want to be with him. Uh, but she ended up having two children with him, Byron, who had developmental difficulties, learning difficulties, and a daughter, Zula. After the children were born, Victoria divorced Canning, which was a really daring move at the time. Definitely. But she kept his last name. Around this time, you know, when she left Canning, she had to figure out how to make money, and so she kind of went back to her spiritualist roots, and her and her sister Tennessee became traveling mediums and fortune tellers. I love it. So that's how they began their career. Yeah. In 1868, they became employed by railroad magnate Cornelius Vanderbilt, who was said to be impressed by their skills as clairvoyants. So they mm. were like his personal clairvoyants, mm. his personal mediums. And I with, want one of those. Yeah, seriously. Tell me what the fuck is up. Yeah. Um, with his backing, so with his money, the two sisters went from being traveling fortune tellers to Wall Street stockbrokers, and wow. they opened um, Woodhull Claflin and Company in 1870, and it was the first brokerage firm headed by women. So uh, these two sisters were like, we're in the game. They were Love very, it. like, smart. A lot of people talk about this story as kind of being a rags to riches story, yeah. really. Like, they managed to create this life for themselves. Yeah. Well, and it also goes to show you that, like, the things you learn in school and how well you do in school doesn't necessarily uh, show intelligence. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. They were crafty and clever. Yeah. And they did really well in the stock market, being, being brokers, because... They looked at the market and they were like, what's not being utilized? What's untapped? What's an untapped resource? Yeah. Uh, and that was women. So they started aiming their business towards women. Love it. Um, and it says widows, teachers, actresses, and even prostitutes and madams came to the firm, which featured a women-only back room for private discussions with their savings, and the sisters were able to not only afford an expensive Manhattan apartment, but mm. also bankroll their political aspirations. Mm. So they saw a need that needed to be filled, yeah. and they filled it, and they managed to make a lot of money doing this. Wow. So uh, initially, the money came from Vanderbilt, but they were able to make a lot of money for themselves. So let's backtrack. There's a lot of, like, forward and back, because I okay. wanted to, like, complete parts of her life without okay. getting distracted by other things. Yes. So um, in 1866, Victoria met and married Colonel James Harvey Blood. Ooh. <laughs> and he was a former Union soldier from Missouri, which is something that I found interesting because Missouri during the Civil War split down the middle. Uh -huh. So half of it was Union and half of it was Confederate. And her husband was a Union soldier from okay. Missouri. And as soon as they got married, he really encouraged Victoria's interest in women's rights. 
um, because around that time she was really starting to develop interests and this this is when the suffragette movement and things were starting Mm -hmm. to kick off. So both he and Victoria were free love advocates, Mm. which meant something very different in 1860 Mm. uh, than it later became to me in, in like 1960s. It was more about a woman's right to marry, divorce, and bear children without government interference. So women who married in the United States in the 19th century were usually locked into those unions pretty much. They didn't have a lot of recourse, even Uh if they were loveless, like her first marriage was. It was still difficult for her to get a divorce and could have been much more difficult I'm sure if her husband had wanted to make it more difficult Yeah. so divorce was really limited by the law and it was of course socially scandalous and women who divorced were oftentimes stigmatized and ostracized from society and Victoria Woodhull you know she concluded that women should have the choice to leave unbearable marriages if they wanted to she lived her whole life having monogamous relationships, which is not what we think of as free, free love. love. Yeah. But she also said that a woman has a right to change her mind within those relationships. And she also believed that the choice to have sex or not was, in every case, the woman's choice, oh. since this would place her in an equal status to the man who yeah. had the capacity to rape and physically overcome a woman, whereas a woman did not have that capacity with respect to a man. She said... I think that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So it should be her decision whether or not to engage in sex. Yeah. Um, And she said, To woman, by nature, belongs the right to sexual determination. When the instinct is aroused in her, then and only then should commerce follow. When a woman rises from sexual slavery to sexual freedom into the ownership and control of her sexual organs and man is obliged to respect this freedom, then will this instinct become pure and holy. Then will woman be raised from the iniquity and morbidness in which she now wallows for existence and the intensity and glory of her creative functions be increased a hundredfold. (laughs) And in this same speech, uh, she said, yes, I am a free lover. I have an inalienable constitutional and natural right to love whom I may, to love as long or as short a period as I can, to change that love every day if I please, and with that right, neither you nor any law can frame have any right to interfere. So, wow. yeah, I, I love that. It was it, It's an incredibly progressive... progressive idea. Yes, thank yeah. you. I was going for something else, but thank you so much. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's an inc- incredibly progressive thing to say at that time. So she also rallied against hypocrisy because men were allowed to have mistresses pretty much out in the open. They were allowed to engage in prostitution, and it was never really, the onus was never on them, right? Like, if they engaged in prostitution, the prostitute would be shunned from society, but not the man who was engaging in it. Um, she believed, actually, in the legalization of prostitution. She also became the first woman to testify before the Congressional Committee upon her appearance in support of women's suffrage with the House Judiciary Committee in 1871. And not only did she appear before the community uh, committee, but she also argued that the recently passed 14th and 15th Amendments also granted women the right to vote. So we have talked about that several times on this podcast. And that was basically saying that, like, all men, regardless mm-hmm. of their race and regardless of their, um, like, landowning status, should have the right to vote. Yeah. And this is something that a lot of suffragettes also fought for. This is what they said. They were like, well, that we should also have the right to be a to part vote. of that, yeah. yeah. 
Um, but she was the first one to testify before the Judiciary Committee about Amazing. that, um, as far as women go. And although she would not actually be able to vote for herself, because legally women did not have the right to vote, in 1870, she declared that she was going to run for president, and her campaign was financed by money that she and her sister had made on Wall Street, and uh, she was nominated for president by the Equal Rights Party, which is a party that she helped organize and create. She spoke publicly against the government being composed of only men. She proposed developing a new constitution and a new government and her party actually nominated Frederick Douglass to be her vice president Wow! though he never acknowledged the nomination so he was never like yes girl I'll be your Your vice vice." but that's how progressive this party was like they were like we're going to have a woman run for president and we're going to have a black Black dude be her vice in 1870 (laughs) which is crazy um On May 14th, 1870, uh, Victoria and Tennessee used money that they'd made from their brokerage firm to found a newspaper called the Woodhull and Claflin's Weekly. And at its height, it had a national circulation of 20,000, which for an independent newspaper is actually pretty good. really huge. And again, 1870, and this is the primary purpose of this newspaper. It was not only to support Victoria... Uh, Woodhull's nomination for president, but it also, in the six years that it was published, it really advocated for feminism. It was Mm -hmm. actually one of its primary goals, and it was notorious for publishing controversial opinions, advocating, among other things, sex education, free love, women's suffrage, short skirts, spiritualism, and vegetarianism, and uh, licensed prostitution. Wow. That's basically, this was like the most liberal paper ever ever to exist at this time. Yeah. And it also is known to be... um, the first paper that printed an English version of Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto in it. And it also advocated for birth control, which is part of what got it in trouble later on. So in 1872, the Weekly published a story that set off a national scandal um, when Henry Ward Beecher, who was a renowned preacher in Brooklyn's Plymouth Church, had condemned Woodhull's free love philosophy in his sermons, but a member of the church, Theodore Tilton, disclosed to Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who was a friend of Victoria Woodhull, uh, that his wife had confessed. So this is like, she said to him, that said to her, that came back to Victoria Woodhull. Yeah. So this guy went to Elizabeth Cady Stanton and was like, listen, my wife had an affair with that preacher who says that free love is bullshit. So Elizabeth Cady Stanton went to Victoria Woodhull and was like, so this is... This is what's up. This is what's up. And and Victoria Woodhull uh, published an article in her newspaper basically, like, outing him for adultery. Whoa. Yeah. And he ended up standing trial in 1875 for adultery And in uh, the proceeding, it proved to be, like, one of the most sensational legal episodes. Wow. And um, it ended in a hung jury, even though, really, like, in the public's opinion, the church still won the case. Because, of course, it's still 1875. But, um, so back when she first wrote that, in November of 1872, Woodhull Claflin um, and her husband, Blood, Colonel Blood... (laughs) 
were blood, blood bloody. Um, which, can you even blame her? Like, she didn't take his last name, and I'm like, I don't even blame you. Victoria Blood. You were like, no thanks, I'll, I'll keep Woodhull. Um, so they were arrested and charged with publishing an obscene newspaper as a result of, I mean, of course, all the other shit that they had already been saying, but I think up until that point, they hadn't... That really put it on the map as right. being obscene. They'd yeah. kind of been, like, you know floating under the radar yeah. until they did that. And then the public had to be like, listen, mm-hmm. the, you, you, we can't have women out here doing this shit. Um, so, it's unacceptable. And part of what they said, what they charged them with, was that they were distribu- distributing this obscene paper through the United States Postal Service. So it was really this that propelled Congress to pass the Comstock Law, which is something that we discussed in our birth control episode. Yes. Because people were not allowed to get, like, birth control information or receive birth control through the U.S. Postal Service. Yeah. It's a, um, the Comstock Laws were a set of federal acts um, that limited what could be passed through the mail, anything yeah. that was considered obscene, including contraceptives, sex toys, uh, even no personal, even personal letters with any sexual content or information in them. Damn. Which, like, damn. That are you going a, through every letter? How that do you know? Is no fun. Yeah, yeah. It's before texting. God, let, <laughs> let people at least write dirty letters to each other. God. Right. Um. So, while she was the first woman to appear on a presidential ballot. Her name had been removed from many of the ballots because she was in jail (laughs) for that obscenity charge uh, on Election Day. Even though the charges were later dismissed, her name had been removed from a lot of the ballots. And so it's really unknown how many popular votes she actually received. And a lot of people argued the legitimacy of her candidacy because... Uh, she was 34 at the time when the constitutionally mandated age was 35. Yeah. So uh, while it's agreed upon that she was the first woman in the United States to run for run. president, yeah. um, it is the legitimacy is kind of like murky. A right. lot of people but argue. But she did run. Right. In October of 1876, uh, Woodhull and her husband, Colonel Blood, uh, divorced. And after after Cornelius Vanderbilt's death in 1877, uh, one of his sons or relatives, I think a, a cousin or something, paid Victoria and Tennessee $1,000, which the, is the equivalent of, do you want to guess, in today's money? I'm going to guess... 1,000 18, in 1876. 1,000 in 1876. I'm going to guess it's still in the thousands? Yes. I'm going to guess 40,000. Less than that, but still a lot of money. 20,000. 24,000. Okay, I was going <laughs> to guess 21st, and then I went higher. Yes. So um, both Victoria and her sister Tennessee were given about $24,000 in current money, $1,000 yeah. each, to leave the country because they had riled up so much controversy. Yeah. which is They're like, you just need to get out. Yeah, listen, it's going to look bad for us if you guys stay here. So we're going to give you a shit ton of money, go to England, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. And it's also part of what contributed to her and her husband splitting up. It just became, like, too much pressure. Like, yeah. there was too much public controversy all the time because Victoria kind of courted controversy. She didn't care. Yeah. She was a spiritualist. She was a free love advocate. Um, a women's rights advocate, 
and like a birth control advocate and a prostitution advocate, and it just got to be too yeah, much. She for had a huge ass target on her back. A woman in the 1870s. Yeah. So they went to uh, Great Britain in August of 1877, and she continued doing her work. She continued public speaking, and it was at one of those public speaking appearances in London where Victoria met a banker named John Bilduff Martin, and she married for the third time, and she from then until her death, went by Victoria Woodhull Martin. Which, oh. if I were Colonel Blood, I'd be like, I'm the only husband whose name you didn't take? Like, really? Like, but come okay. on. Come on, Vicky. So it was under that name that she began publishing a magazine called The Humanitarian from 1892 to 1901 with the help of her daughter, Zula. Aw, Zula. Her husband ended up dying in 1901, uh, the year that they stopped publishing The Humanitarian. And at that time, Victoria moved to a village in the country where she became a champion of education reform. Wow. In an English village and in all English schools, which had the addition of a kindergarten curriculum. So yeah. she advocated for adding in, like, a kindergarten and really helping to reform these schools that were in uh, the country that maybe didn't receive the best education, education yeah. most of the time. Which is, I mean, like, that's the thing about this. Every time we do one of these, I'm just like, God damn, Like, what a life. You know what I mean? I was like, just thinking, I'm like, how the fuck would they do a biopic about this? But how do you accomplish all of these things? Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, you grew up in poverty with, like, an Ill illiterate mother and a snake oil salesman for a father. You got ran out of town by villagers. Yeah. <laughs> you became a traveling spiritualist and medium. Then you started the first brokerage company um, as a woman. And then you... Like, what else? What's Ran next? for president. You ran for president. You had the first um, the newspaper. newspaper. You had two different newspapers. You lived your life in England. You helped reform the English school system. Like, what else? What else? You she's, were married three times. She's not done. Jesus. Oh, she's not done. I mean, she's almost done. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I couldn't really find much after that. Like, I couldn't find much on exactly how she died. Uh, or what happened um, really after all of her work with the English school system. Maybe right. after that she was like, I'm tired. <sighs> I'm just going to live in the country and chill now. Like, I'm I don't done. know. I don't think she can do that. Because that was in 1901, and I really didn't find a whole lot about her after that until her death in 1927, um, which is seven years after women gained the right to vote in the United States, although she never did vote in the United States because yeah, she, she didn't left. live here at the at that time. So that is the incredible life of Victoria Woodhull, which is insanity. Wow. Um, I do need to mention very quickly because I can just see our inbox blowing up. Blowing up a little bit about this. Uh, she had some problematic views on abortion. <laughs> mm. She was not really an advocate for abortion. She wasn't... That kind of surprises me. It is a little surprising. She was an advocate for birth control. She was an advocate for, um, you know, women having the right to choose their sexual partners and their relationships and all of those things. But when it came to abortion, she had some hot takes. I feel like that's pretty common at the time. I, I do, too. I think that that was a pretty common um, take at that time. And then also, in addition to that, like, 
she's still, even with her kind of problematic views in that way, she was still so fucking radical. Like, so radical that, yeah. like, Susan B. Anthony had actually said things about, like, her and her sister Tennessee where they were like, they're careless, they're, like... They're too hot. We yeah. need to like back yeah, yeah, yeah. up. We gotta stay away. We gotta distance ourselves from them. Exactly. Um, which should tell you how badass these ladies were. One hundred percent. Yeah. One hundred percent. All right. So, like Keegan said in the beginning of the show, I am going to be discussing a more current feminist advocate. She is the at times forgotten and unsung hero of the Me Too movement, Miss mm-hmm. Tarana Burke. Yes. So talk to me. I'm going to. There's not as much information about like her childhood and like personal life and things like that. And I think it's because her popularity has kind of become it's more recent. It's more recent, mm-hmm. right? So it is going to be more of a quick one, but I think it's definitely worth discussing. So Toronto was born on September 12th, 1973 in the Bronx, New York. Her family was low income, working class, and she oh. grew up living in housing projects. She's a New Yorker who was born the day after September 11th. That is rough. Well, 1973. I know, but like, oh, imagine like her that birthday. birthday. Like, imagine. Yeah, <laughs> that's not, you don't, you don't want that. You don't celebrate that year. No, no, that'd be difficult. So she was raped and sexually assaulted as a child and a teenager. And because of this, her mother encouraged her to get involved in the community to help her recover from her trauma. She was like, put it back into the community. This is going to help you heal, that kind of thing. Um, By getting in touch with her community, she was inspired to improve the lives of young girls who went through the same abuse that she endured, especially when it came to young girls of color. I feel like that's a pretty good take for her mom to have. Very. You know? Yeah. I mean, you know, some therapy and stuff would be good, too. Didn't say whether or not she yeah, was, like... Yeah, hopefully it's a multifaceted kind of, like, yeah, response exactly. to the situation. But I, I think that I don't hear a lot of people saying that. Like, yeah. you know, maybe it would help if you, like, talk to other people, formed a community. Exactly. So she attended Alabama State University and then transferred and graduated from Auburn University. While in college, she organized press conferences and protests regarding economic and racial justice. She then moved to Selma, Alabama in the late 90s. So she was not in New York during September 11th, but still. Still, still a New Yorker. Native New Yorker. Yep, Exactly. So in 2003, she developed the nonprofit Just Be, an all-girls program for young black girls between the ages of 12 and 18. So now I am going to tell you about Just Be Incorporated. So in 1997, Tarana met a 13-year-old girl named Heaven in Alabama. Heaven got her attention and began to tell her, tell Tarana her story. Tarana recalls that she tried to walk away as she saw, quote, a deep sadness and yearning for confession that I immediately wanted no part of. Then heaven begged her to listen. Tarana recalls, she struggled to tell me about her stepdaddy, or rather her mother's boyfriend, who was doing monstrous things to her developing body. I was horrified by her words. The emotions welling inside of me ran a gamut, and I listened until I literally couldn't take it anymore. She then cut the girl off and sent her to another counselor. She says, I watched her walk away from me as she tried to recapture her secrets and tuck them back into their hiding place. I watched her put her mask back on and go into the world like she was all alone, and I couldn't bring myself to whisper, me too. Tarana realized she never wanted another girl, especially a girl of color, to feel silenced by her abuse. So 10 years after that conversation, she created Just Be Incorporated, a nonprofit 
a nonprofit that helps victims of sexual harassment and assault. So then, so she's been doing Just Be Incorporated for a while. And then in 2006, she started using the phrase, me too. It started by her using this phrase on MySpace as a way to raise awareness of the pervasiveness of sexual abuse and assault in society. Um, The phrase, me too, was used to promote empowerment through empathy among other women of color who were sexually abused. So this was very much like for her community Mm -hmm. to have a place Mm -hmm. to discuss it because I do think that as it still is today, I mean, 2006 wasn't that long ago, but we tend to believe the young white girl, she tends to immediately receive therapy, medication, Mm -hmm. anything she needs, and sympathy from the people around her, where I feel like Tarana never really received true sympathy. I mean, her mom said put it back into the community, but she probably didn't feel the acceptance. And let me tell you this, as someone who's been sexually abused, it's never easy to come out and say what your problems are. But I feel like when that did happen, people who were poverty stricken or people of color were probably not taken as seriously. Right. Well, I mean, we've already talked about um, the way mental health is handled in communities of color. Specifically, I can speak to the way that it's handled in um, black communities. And then also, we have also discussed... There, there are just so many factors here, because we've also discussed the fact that historically, black women have been hypersexualized, mm-hmm. and that will work to desensitize people um, to sexual assault or sexual violence. And I think even to young girls, because right. this, is, this was geared toward 12 to 18-year-old girls, mm-hmm. you know, and I feel like the sexualization of black women, especially as adults, can tend to trickle down into the illegitimacy of a young black child who's being hurt or seeing it as, like, a cultural difference, I think, is very common. Right. Well, and also, a lot of the time, black girls mature faster, their bodies mature faster um, than white girls, typically. White girls tend to stay smaller, longer. They don't develop boobs and hips and things as quickly in general. And then also, as we've talked about, um, p- women of color are more likely to be sexual assaulted, sexually yeah. assaulted in general. Yeah. Um, black women, Native women, you know, those people are more likely to be sexually assaulted. So you compound all of these issues. Yeah. And it really does speak to the fact that we needed something to fill that void. Like, yeah. there needed to be someone there for these girls because yeah. society was really set up for Against them. Not- them. Yeah, yeah. And I love that her whole slogan is empathy by empowerment. You know, it's like being empathetic with with one another and being able to empower each other through their shared traumatic experiences, which is something that then led into the Me Too movement. Yes. So over the next decade, she, you know, worked on developing the Me Too movement. It was something that, like, I think was very much still a part of her nonprofit, Just Be, but she was definitely still um, speaking with that phrase, Me Too, quite often. She expanded and started after-school and youth training programs along with written and multimedia resources helping survivors of all ages heal through shared empathy. When the hashtag MeToo began to become widely widely popular in our culture, she began to use the media spotlight to emphasize the movement's core mission, 
quote, too much of the recent press attention has been focused on perpetrators and does not adequately address the systematic nature of violence, including the importance of race, ethnicity and economic status Mm -hmm. and sexual violence and other forms of violence against women. We believe that women of color and women who have faced generations of exclusion should be at the center of our solutions. Yes. This moment in time calls for us to use the power of our collective voices to find solutions that leave no woman behind. So also during this time, was not too long ago, we're talking like 2016-17, this is when... A lot of celebrities started using it as right. well. And it should be said, like, in the beginning of the Me Too movement, I know we talked about this in our very first episode of this podcast, in the beginning of the Me Too movement, she was not getting the she credit was, or attention she for She was this. not. So... The movement seeks to radicalize the notion of mass healing. Days after the hashtag MeToo broke out, she says, As a community, we create a lot of space for fighting and pushing back, but not enough for connecting and healing. Which I think is something that um, was very poignant with me because I think that that is a big reason why we started our show. Yes. Because we were feeling so angry and we wanted to fight where we've found healing through unity and through communication. yeah. And connecting, exactly. And not about... Um, getting people up in arms and angry and wanting people to riot, but more a community for us to feel like we're being heard and that we support each other and all these different things that we're going through. Right. I mean, there's a time and a place for that energy, you know, for that, like, riotous energy. Totally. There's a time and a place for that. There's also a lot of good that can be done in channeling that energy into empathy and support for others, you know. Well, and she even goes on to say that she doesn't believe in sacrificing everything for the cause. She believes it's about joy, not trauma, which I think is a very progressive way of thinking about things because... When you've been through trauma, it is that is the hardest thing to find again is joy and happiness. And being able to have empathy for each other and empower each other, you're bringing that joy back into people's lives and you're giving them a new meaning. It's not about sacrificing or, you know, playing victimhood all the time. It's about empowering yourself to be able to make a change in a joyful way that's going to make you more connected to everybody in the world. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's also important not to be so absorbed or let yourself get completely swallowed up by martyrdom. Yes. Because I think that that can be an easy thing to um, happen to you. Yes, exactly. Um, Oh, I did forget to mention that she moved to Philadelphia in 2008. But I digress. Um, <laughs> like I said in the beginning, Tirana is often forgotten in her own movement. After Alyssa Milano was the one who first tweeted encouraging women to come forward and say me too if they've experienced sexual assault or harassment. Milano quickly acknowledged Tirana Burke's earlier use of the phrase on Twitter, writing, I was just made aware of an earlier Me Too movement and its origin story is equal parts heartbreaking and inspiring. That year, Tarana Burke was among a group of activists to be dubbed the Silence Breakers and named Time's Person of the Year. So, again, goes all the way back to our first episode Mm -hmm. where we talk a lot about the people that were highlighted during this time and how I remember the first episode having read the Time article and discussing a lot of it with who was in the forefront, who was being talked about the most, who got the biggest pictures in these articles. Right. Toronto Burke was not one of those people. You know, right. we saw she a lot of... on the cover. Yeah. Right? But, I mean, and we discussed this when in that first episode, my kind of, like, 
frustration with the way that the movement was being portrayed and mm-hmm. and it's not to diminish anybody's role, right? Like we've had the discussion about my complicated relationship with Taylor Swift, but yes. I still think she deserved to be included. It's just where the but, spotlight was. But you know? that's exactly right. And then it I understand that we are living in a capitalist society and like this is just how it works. But it does frustrate me whenever I'm just like what's your priority? Is it to sell newspapers? Or Or is it to celebrate the people who deserve it? That's exactly right. My big issue is that I feel like the Me Too movement was whitewashed. Absolutely. Oh, it absolutely was. the fact that if you were to have asked me a week ago to give the name of the woman who started the Me Too movement, Mm -hmm. I would have had to Google it. I knew I could picture her in my head. Right. We all know what what she she looks like. like. But I could not tell you her name. Mm-hmm. I could tell you Alyssa Milano was on the cover. I could mm-hmm. tell you Taylor Swift was on the cover. I could even tell you some of the things that were covered in that right. article. And again, like, you know, this is not to diminish anybody's role. Of it's not to say not. that, like, Alyssa Milano speaking out wasn't important because it was. Because, and because there is that's something, what right. catapulted the right. Me Too movement there is as a whole. To be said about having a platform and using that platform for good. But I do oftentimes think about you have to take it all the way back to how do people get their platforms, right? And like there's a reason why she didn't have the kind of platform that other people had for a number of reasons. You know, she's not an actress, she's not an entertainer, but that's not it. She's also a black woman, you know. From from the Bronx, being raised in the projects, who's dedicated her entire life to working in nonprofits and creating a community for young girls of color to have a place to feel right. safe and, that's and explore not the kind the trauma. Of, that's not the kind of thing people were writing articles that's about. That's not kitschy. That's not, right? like, hot-button news. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? That's not but something it, that people want to... But it should be for should all be. of the reasons that we already talked about, which is that, like, this is a big problem in this community. Yeah. And we are all closing our eyes to these little girls who are being victimized. Yeah. You know, like... And I feel like a lot of feminists are closing their eyes to a lot of these things because feminism in popular culture is whitewashed 100%. Yes. Yes. Most feminism that you will see on television, that you will read about in the news, that you will see the most articles on, are white feminist views. Right. And it is not intersectional. It's the least threatening. Yes. Right. If you see if you see Taylor Swift in a sweatshirt that says feminist on it, yes. it feels less threatening than if you were to see maybe a LGBTQ person in a sweatshirt that says or that. To see or to see Tara Burke wearing right. a feminist sweatshirt. Right. It would feel different and, and it I, would feel more threatening, right? Yes. Like, well you know? and I also feel like there are Specifically women of color who would turn against the phrase feminist and feminism in this culture because they're not being accepted. They don't want to be a part of it because the doors aren't open for them. Yes, yes. I know a lot of black women in particular who have claimed the term womanist instead because historically, you know, um, the feminist movement has not been inclusive. It has not been. And until... That becomes more obvious to people, you know, it's not just you and I talking intersectional feminism until that is the norm. That's what's going to happen. Right. It shouldn't have to be said. Intersectionality should just be feminism. That shouldn't be something that has to be said. But unfortunately, I have had many problematic conversations with many people who claim to be feminists um, about aspects of their feminism that is not intersectional. Yeah. You know, so... 
it's it's a really, really important thing to be talking about. Yeah, and I, I just feel like Tanara just didn't get the respect and the accolades that she deserved. She did she did win awards. She in 2018, uh, she knows media gave her the award of Voices of the Year Catalyst Award. In 2019, she won a Trailblazer Award. She has been recognized, but on such a smaller scale where I feel like when we think of the champions of the Me Too movement, we think about mainly white female celebrities. Right. We think about Alyssa Milano. We think about the problematic Rose McGowan. We think about, like, these people. And we think, and we also immediately turn our attention to people like Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey. You're right. And the big thing that she, she was like, no, we need to get our attention off of the perpetrators and and instead of and I would even go so far as to say, instead of giving the, these voices, which yes, these celebrities they deserve to share their stories, they deserve to have right. voices of what's happened to them. If they want to share, they should be able to shift the focus over for one second to the to that little girl, Tanara Burke in the Bronx, New York, who was sexually abused, sexually assaulted, and when she's older, had a thirteen year old girl come up to her and share this story that rocked her to her very core that she didn't even know how to respond. She sent her away. Can we look at the dirty side of this for now? Right. And also, you know, there is something to say to be said about focusing on your healing. And I don't think that the Me Too movement in its current incarnation with these white celebrities at the center did a very good job of that or is doing a very good job I of that. I think it created like, a community. Which is amazing. And that's that's wonderful. But like, for instance, and I'm not again, everyone deals with their trauma differently. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not trying to judge the way that she's handling her trauma. But so much about what Rose McGowan was doing, for mm-hmm. instance, was not focusing on her healing. Well, I don't were, think. Well, it, you remind me of a few things that she did. Um. Well, I remember that she, there was that big thing. She's pretty much considered a like turf, like trans exclusionary. Yeah. Um, a feminist because a radical feminist, uh, because she said a lot of really transphobic things. Yeah. And made a lot of remarks. Um, about that, and she's just exploded on a lot of people. And I understand her anger, yeah. but I really like that Burke's approach to the entire thing is like we need to turn the focus back on the survivors and we need to turn the focus back on their healing and their joy and finding a way to like move forward in joy instead of sitting in your sadness and your victimhood finding that light at the end of the time and always saying you know Harvey Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein. It's like, yes, yes, yes. Point that out. Don't let anybody forget. Make sure he's, like, taken in. You know, fuck him up. Burn it down. I feel that way. Yeah. But also, where can we find a balance with making sure that the mental health of the survivors is at, you know, our utmost attention at all times? Yes. You know, I think that that's so important. And not being blind to different stories of sexual assault Absolutely. because people I think liked the idea of the celebrity sexual assault scandal. Well, and yeah, and the celebrity sexual assaulter. Yes. Like Harvey Weinstein made such a um it was salacious. It was yeah. like this super rich, grimy, um gross producer you your have the obvious casting couch element. Yeah. Yes, you have your damsel in distress with these beautiful actresses and you have your obvious slimy gross villain. It's yes. like a movie and you don't take a hard look 
at the everyday victims of sexual assault. And that Although is you hear it on the news every fucking day and, and don't care. And you don't care. But I will say that is something, no matter who fucking started it, no matter who got it popularized, that is something that Me Too, I think, did do well. Yeah. In that you were now seeing your friends, your coworkers, your, you know family members coming out and saying like here is a story of something that happened to me you know and so it did it did allow for these kind of maybe what people would consider more quote-unquote mundane less exciting yes um stories of sexual assault to be shared which is super important exactly so to this day burke is the senior director of girls for gender equity in brooklyn which strives to help young women of color increase their overall development through various programs and classes and she was also a consultant on the movie selma which i did not know I didn't know that either. Yeah, she, well, she was, did live in Selma for a while, I she guess. She did. She was a consultant for that film, which I think is uh, very smart of the makers of that movie. And this was before me, too. This is 2014. Well, yeah. Ava DuVernay is freaking amazing. She knows what's up. Yeah. She knows what's up. So that is kind of my semi-undetailed biography, more information about her causes story of Tanara Burke. That was amazing. I'm so glad you did that. Thank um, you. I'm really glad that we, like, put the spotlight on her. Yes, very important. And, say, like, say is. her name. It like, is. she needs yes. to be recognized right. for what she's done. And if you hear your friends talk about the Me Too movement or you talk about the Me Too movement, make sure that she's credited. Make sure that you say her name and that the world knows who started this entire thing and what her vision was. And I'm so, we don't so get distracted. interested in learning more about her and her causes. Like, I'm very yeah. interested in being I wanna involved. Know, I want to know more about her childhood. I want to know more about, like, her personal struggles mm-hmm. and how she came to the... Because you know that, you know, she obviously went through a lot with what we've read. But I want to know more about how how she came to the ideas of turning this anger right. into joy. Yeah, where did this philosophy come from? Like, yeah. I think that that is so important. And um, I also just would love to know, like, how what are ways that I can get involved? Because I find her philosophy to be so appealing. Yeah. Um, that it does focus on the healing um, that that survivors need to go through. Yeah. Because especially in these communities, especially in these communities of color, I feel like the cycle can never be broken. Yeah. Someone needs to know, throw a wrench a wrench in the wheel. Right, you know? right. We got to break the wheel, <laughs> you yeah. know? Like, someone has to go in there and, like, allow these people to talk about their trauma yeah. and then heal from their trauma. Like, that it needs to happen. I bet if I were to read more interviews, I could find ways of getting involved. I mean, I, I would recommend going to the Just Be Incorporated website. Mm-hmm. Um, I would look to see if there is any sort of um, like community outreach programs where you live that have the same ideology. Uh, any sort of girls programs, women's shelters, things like that. Um, and just kind of see what's out there. But I think by definitely... Google Tanara Burke. Google Just Be Incorporated and find more information about how you can further this movement into what she originally intended. I think we all owe her that a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my God. I am sweating. Yeah, it's hot in here. I literally felt a bead of sweat go down my face. Guys, we're having, like, a little bit of a heat wave in L.A., and I am trying to save money, so I turned my AC off when I went to work today. Mm. And so when I got home, my thermostat said that it was 
89 degrees inside my house. Uh, by the time you came over, it was 80 degrees inside my house, but it's always hotter in this closet. It's so, always hotter. I can't turn my AC off because I have dogs that stay at home. So we try to turn it off at night and have all the windows oh, open. Oh, awful. I, oh, no, it's actually, we, oh, we live on the it. third floor. And so when we open and our bed is up against the wall, like we're five-year-old children. Mm-hmm. So the breeze that comes in from, <sighs> like, we get, we're right by, like, the hills and the mountains. is beautiful. But we get a beautiful breeze at night. It's That's great. nice. Because and then Max I, just gets up at, like, 5 a.m. and turns it on. I cannot sleep if it's, like, hot. I can't like, either. I cannot sleep. No, I can't either. I just sleep in my underwear. Fun fact, I have to wear a shirt to bed. I used to always like to sleep just in my underwear. Um, not a bra, like, nothing on top. My puppy Penny loves nipples. Oh, oh dear. She, I mean, she doesn't want to bite them. She just wants to like lick them. Oh, still, when she was <laughs> when she was a puppy, she would like. She didn't really have any teeth, so it didn't hurt. But she would she would nibble at my my boob like she was trying to get milk out of it. Like she knew that that was like. Well, I mean, also, you should sleep with clothes on because when the big one hits, yeah. you do not want to be running out of your house from the hey, earthquake. I'm just saying, I don't give a fuck if oh, no, I, I mean, get her clothed. I I'm going to be topless it. like, what is happening? I'll do it, but it's just not practical for trying to escape. Yeah. We have already talked about, like, Max takes care of Penny. I take care of Dorothy. We leash him up. We go. Like, we always have the harnesses yeah. right by yes. the door. Yeah, you need a go bag. Yeah. yeah. We, we had a go bag when the fires were happening a couple of years ago, and we put all of Dorothy's papers in a backpack and mm-hmm. made, made sure we have it. Yeah, you got to get papers. You got to get canned goods, water. I mean, honestly, it sounds like we're, for all of you who don't live in Los Angeles, it sounds like we're being paranoid. We're not. No. We're like soups overdue for a huge earthquake. There was a podcast called The Big One where it just talked about, like, like how to prepare yourself yeah. for the earthquake because it's coming. It's it's fucking. I mean, it could it could be after we die, but it is coming, and we have to be prepared until. Oh the day no, we die. it's gonna come before that. I mean, I heard it was between like now and fifty years because our we we are overdue for one on the San Andreas. So anyway, this is not important. Oh. And Madigan is about to die from Madigan the exhaustion. Is like, so is my face just red? I mean, you're a little pink. Do yeah. I look like I have blush on? A little bit. Yeah. I remember that from last year, especially when I like I have mascara on today. I feel like I have like a full face of makeup. On. Like I have high. <laughs> Should go out after this. Fuck no, I'm going to bed. <laughs> All right, you guys, thank you so much for listening. If you want to say something about this episode, if you want to send in sister solidarity stories or any other listener mail episode ideas, go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can direct message us and follow us on Instagram. That's where it's at, at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. We sometimes go on Twitter. Go ahead and follow us there at Yanf Podcast, Y-A-N-F Podcast. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review us on our business page. We like it a whole lot, and we like it even better when you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It means so much to us. Also, go ahead and listen to us on Radio Public if you haven't already. It's free for you. Help us out a little bit. I feel like it's scripted now when I say I, it. I know. Yes. Because I say the same thing over and over again, but it doesn't mean I don't mean it. It's all 100% from the heart, you guys. <laughs> so I think that's all we have for today. With all that being said, we encourage you to rage on. Bye. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwein.
erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.